We were there last week in Genesis chapter 3. This week I want you to find in the same book chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. Please have that open before you. And let's pray together. Father, once again, we come to this moment and we need your help. As we enter into this Christmas season, we want to be ready to celebrate and to honor Jesus well and rightly. So, Lord, teach us this morning. Form our minds, form our hearts today by your word. Lord, breathe life into us. Through your word we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to imagine something with me. Genesis chapter 3 might help you, given what happened there. You are in a gloomy, shadowy place, dungeon-like. It's dark, it's dank, it's depressing to your mind and to your soul. Things are bleak around you, and things are bleak within you. There was the possibility of joy, real and lasting joy, but something happened. You disregarded God's command and you didn't anticipate at all the devastating consequences of that disregard. And now you are in this constant shadowy darkness and gloom, imprisoned, oppressed by it, a a real spiritual and emotional and mental oppression that rules your days. You feel regular premonitions of dread. Everything you see or touch or taste is tainted. There's no real true joy in your life. Your relationships with others are clouded and strained and painful. And worst of all, Your heart feels, how to say this, under the oppression of a heavy hand of something, someone who wants your demise. You are in the grip of something, a captive, and you feel absolutely helpless to do anything. But you know, you have enough of your wits about you to know what you need. What you need more than anything is for someone to come and set you free. Someone to come and break the chains. Someone to come and rescue you. Someone to come and conquer whatever it is, whoever it is that is oppressing you and holding you captive. What you need 
is a champion. A real knight in shining armor. A fierce warrior king to come and set you free. You know we're celebrating Christmas this month. The coming of Jesus as a child born to Mary and to Joseph, his adoptive father. And I find it so interesting that when Jesus was born, these wise men came from the east. We don't know exactly from where. We're just told from the east. But they came asking about a newborn king. Where is he? They said, who has been born king of the Jews, for we've seen his star and we've come to worship him. And, and later in Jesus' life, when he's about to be crucified, he is standing before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and Pilate looks at Jesus and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, where did this idea come from? If you were there observing Jesus. Let's say you're there on that first Christmas night. You're there observing that scene, that baby lying there in a manger with straw, animals munching right not right by you. There, there, there's absolutely nothing suggestive of royalty about that scene. And yet these wise men come and they lay their lavish gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts fit for a king before him. And if you were to observe Jesus there in Galilee and Judea, walking the, the dusty roads through the countryside with his simple clothes and his simple companions, you'd see absolutely nothing suggestive of royalty. And yet Pilate, the Roman governor, is a bit afraid of him. And he inquires about his kingship and his kingdom. Isn't that strange to you? I mean, where would those ideas have come from? Well, many years earlier, in fact, many generations earlier, some words had been spoken and recorded in the earliest book of Scripture, a prophecy. Not with a lot of detail, just a whisper, you might say. And we find it in the book of Genesis, chapter 49, in verse 10. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background here. Several generations after Adam and Eve, there was a man named Abraham. And God called him and spoke these words to him, telling him that he would bless him and he would make of him a great nation. And through that nation, all of the peoples of the earth, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And Abraham had no way of knowing all that God intended, all that God envisioned. He just trusted God and obeyed. Later, Abraham had a son named Isaac. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob, who was also called Israel. It was his, his other name. And Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons who would become, their offspring would become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And when Jacob came very near to the end of his life, he gathered his sons, all 12 of them, around him, and he, he spoke words to them, about them, prophetic words. Look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. 
Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. He starts with Reuben, his firstborn. And the words he speaks to him are not encouraging. You see them there in verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch, referencing a sin that Reuben had committed. He moves on to Simeon and Levi, who were literally, quite literally, partners in crime. And again, the words are not encouraging. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willingness they, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah is next. And having heard the words that his father has already spoken to his older brothers, he's wondering, what's he going to say about me? Because he knows that he's, he's not without sin. But as he listens to his father describe him like a lion victorious over his enemies, preeminent among his peers. He, he's, you can just imagine Judah kind of leaning in, trying to get what his father is saying to him. And then he hears these words. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter? What? There was, at that point, no talk or experience of kings among this clan. They were just all living this simple, nomadic, shepherding life. So what is this scepter, this ruler's staff that would not depart from his offspring? That's what that phrase, between his feet, is referring to those who would be his lineage. The scepter would not depart from his lineage until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, this kingship would continue all the way until, and then from that time onward, this line of kings, this, this scepter passed from generation to generation until there is this great recognition in the form of honor and obedience from peoples. Did you notice that? It's plural. Not just the Israelites, but nations. It reminds you of what God said to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Do you hear what God is saying through the words of Jacob? Something will be accomplished. God is saying, I will accomplish something in this lineage of Judah. Something will be preserved in this line of Judah. Some authority, some kingship. A, a kingship will be there which will extend far beyond some tribal or national boundaries. 
And it will apparently inspire and command the allegiance, the obedience, the worship of people from every nation. Are you seeing this picture? I mean, here from the mouth of this frail, dying man comes these words, which are really from God, this prophecy that from Judah would come a king, actually a line of kings, until one came who was the king, the true king, a warrior king, like a lion conquering his enemy, a lion from the tribe of Judah. The king of kings. So in these verses, through these words from a father to his son, God is whispering about a coming one. It's a, it's a little bit louder than the, than the whisper we, we saw last week in Genesis 3. There's a bit more information here. We're still not given a lot of detail, but we're told now that, that he's a king and he will rule. He'll establish a reign of righteousness and truth to which people will bring, happily bring their obedience. And so to the whisper we heard last week that there would be a coming one, some future seed of the woman, and he, telling us it's a male, some male offspring, he would come and deliver a lethal blow to the head of Satan. He, God says to Satan, will crush your head. To that, from that first whisper is now added this important detail about the coming one. He will be a king. And and by the way, This gets reinforced by words from, of all people, a pagan prophet who speaks words that God puts in his mouth. A guy named Balaam, who is actually hired by the king of Moab, one of Israel's enemies, to come and speak a curse on the nation of Israel. And instead of him speaking words of cursing, he speaks these incredible words of blessing over Israel, and in the course of speaking those words of blessing, he speaks about a coming one. He speaks about one who he can't quite see, but he knows is coming. Just listen to these words. This is Numbers chapter 24 from the mouth of Balaam. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Listen, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and bring down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. Do you hear this? From the mouth of a pagan prophet, one will rise from Jacob. He will conquer all his enemies and there will be great blessing for God's people in that conquest. Do you see? This coming one will be a king He will rule, he will defeat all opposition, and he will bless God's people. That's what God is whispering a little louder in Genesis 49. Such that, down through the generations, after the kingship is actually established, David 
is anointed as king, and he is, as we should have expected, of the tribe of Judah. And his line, his lineage, goes on generation by generation, from David to Solomon, from Solomon to Rehoboam, from Rehoboam to Abijah, all down through 22 generations, over 400 years, all the way to Zedekiah in the year 597 B.C. And with each and every king, the people are watching and wondering, is this the one? And king after king is a disappointment. Some of them are good, some are evil, but none of them meets the description. And all through those generations, God continues to speak through his prophets with with greater specificity, more information about this coming king, even to the specific detail of where he's going to be born, in the city of Bethlehem. You know, when our children were growing up, we used to play this game as a family, especially on long road trips. It was a pretty simple game. It was a form of 20 questions. Someone would think of a person that we all knew, In fact, our favorite category was people from Crossway. So you never know. You might have affectionately been included in our family game. Um, Someone would say, I'm thinking of someone, and the rest of us would start asking questions. And the whole point was to kind of progressively narrow things down until there was only one possibility. So, for example, a typical line of questions would go like this. Is the person male? Yes. Is this person under 20? Yes. Is this person in grade school? Yes. And on the questions would go, progressively narrowing until it got pretty narrowed down and you'd have to resist the impulse to start guessing so that you didn't waste your questions and instead just keep narrowing it down until it could be only one person. God is doing something very similar over the span of the Old Testament. Beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and going all the way through to the last prophet Malachi and all along the way with greater and greater clarity and volume he is revealing information about this coming one progressively narrowing things down to focus our attention on just one person. Just one person matches the description. Now it's not as if God is playing a game with us. It's just that as history unfolds greater specificity is possible. God God knows all along who this Savior will be, but mankind needs help. We need reference points. God can't tell Abraham that the promised one will come through Judah. There is no Judah yet. Judah's still three generations down the road. So God tells Abraham he'll make of him a great nation through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. And three generations later, when Abraham's grandson, Jacob, speaks to his sons, among whom is Judah, God can say this promised one will come through him. And oh, by the way, he'll be a king. So it goes throughout the Old Testament. And then, in the fullness of time, God sends his son. Born of a woman, born of the tribe of Judah, There hasn't been a king in Israel for well over 500 years, but people are still looking. They're still hoping because God had promised. All the way back in Genesis, God promised. And when Jesus is about to be born, the gospel writers make a point of emphasizing that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, 
was of the house and lineage of David. That first king from the tribe of Judah. And when Jesus is born, you have this strange, I would almost say bizarre if I didn't know better. You have this strange incident of these wise men traveling hundreds of miles through the desert, coming to Jerusalem and asking, where is the one who is born the king? And as Jesus grows, and at age 30, he enters into his very open, very public ministry. He begins to gather his disciples. He meets one of them, Nathaniel. Let me just read this for you. This is from John chapter 1. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. I mean, so impressed by Jesus was he that he immediately links him in his mind to this long-awaited coming one, this coming King. And then, when Jesus is standing before Pilate on trial, what, what what an interesting moment this is. Just listen to this once again. This is John chapter 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I mean, here is this Roman official, has all of the power of the empire at his disposal. He's the governor over Judea. He represents the emperor. And he's asking Jesus regarding his kingship and his kingdom, apparently aware that despite all appearances, something, someone very powerful is standing before him. And then, after his death and resurrection, Jesus' disciples, they're they're all standing there before him. And they say to him, Lord is now the time you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Is now the time you're going to establish yourself as king. They're still not getting that his kingdom is not of this world, and yet he is a king who came to conquer. You know, I love, I have really come to love the passages in the Bible that describe the Lord as a warrior. 
Exodus chapter 15. Here is the song that Moses sings and leads the people of Israel in after God has opened up the Red Sea for them. Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Exodus 15, verse 4, listen to this. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Or how about this one, which I read in my devotions recently, and it, I tell you, it made shivers run up and down my spine. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 10. This is Jeremiah. He's doing his thing that God's called him to do, but everybody's persecuting him. He says, For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him, say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, and we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. And Jeremiah says this, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Or think back to the prophet Balaam and how God met him while he was riding on his donkey. Do you remember this? The angel of the Lord stood before him with his sword drawn, ready to take him out if he did not yield. The Lord is a warrior. He is a warrior king. That is the picture we see so vividly presented in Revelation chapter 19. Jesus riding on this white horse with all of his armies arrayed behind him. And he's got a crown, an incomparable crown on his head. He's got a royal robe. And on his robe and on his thigh is written, King of Kings. Lord of Lords. And that, dear friends, is exactly what we needed. That is exactly what we so desperately need, a king to conquer and liberate and set us free and bring us out of our captivity and out of darkness, out of our bondage to sin and death and Satan's grip into the kingdom of his great light. Well, let me wrap this up. As I said last week, this story that we see unfolding from Genesis all the way to Revelation, this is our story. It's the story of humanity. We're in it, and we are in need of rescue. And God has promised and has sent a Savior. These words that we see in Genesis 49, they're an announcement by God of a coming one. And as I, was, as I was putting this sermon together this past week, and once again just tracing the line of God's promise through the Old Testament, I was at the same time thinking about all of the hard and heavy and difficult situations that are being faced by the people of this church. I can't help but think about them. They're in my mind, in my heart. So many, it seems, and I'm sure there's many I'm not aware of, People facing diseases in their bodies, cancer or something that might be cancer. People facing real financial difficulties. People in hard relational situations. People who have recently lost loved ones and they feel it all the more with the holidays coming. 
I could keep naming hard and heavy situations and it wouldn't be long before I'd name one that you can identify with. Life can be hard. And all of us are carrying burdens. So what word does God have for a people dealing with and burdened down by the effects of sin in the world to say nothing about the burden of our own sin on our hearts? Into the midst of their situations, God speaks his word. It starts with a whisper. A whisper of hope in Genesis chapter 3. A little louder whisper of rescue in Genesis chapter 49. God has done something and is doing something and he will bring it to completion. Something that will swallow up all these other things. And that will make them to be remembered, if they're remembered at all, as momentary light afflictions. All the burdens, all the frustrations, all the fears, all the heartaches, all the death, perhaps most miraculous of all, all the sin. All our sin. Swallowed up. When we recognize and receive and humbly and gratefully bow before this perfect warrior king who came to rescue and who gives victory, his victory, to all who turn to him in absolute trust. Oh, friends, hear the good news. Sin and death will not triumph for those who are in Christ. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Genesis tells us how things got to be the way they are, but it also begins to tell us how things will be restored to the way God intends them to be. They'll be restored by the, the coming of a king. So what should we do? How should we respond this morning? Well, here's an idea from Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyful song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the harp and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King. Amen. Let's stand together and let's do that. Steve.